Spencer Balper, the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly appearance, his weekly Monday appearance. It's frequently on a Monday that we dis, uh, that we talk is managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. It is Monday, uh, specifically July 29th. And that being the case, uh, baseball's trade deadline looms. July has already seen a number of trades, uh, maybe not of the highest profile, uh, but of a high-ish profile. Uh, for example, a trade that sent right-hander Scott Feldman from the Chicago Cubs to the Baltimore Orioles. And also in another deal, uh, right-hander Ricky Nolasco to the Los Angeles Dodgers from the Miami Marlins in exchange for not a lot, uh, not a lot. And what follows, uh, I asked Cameron about some of the deals that have been made already and, of course, also some of the deals that might get made uh, over the next couple days. Jake Peavy's name is certainly evoking that conversation, as are the names of uh, uh, no fewer than three relief pitchers, etc., etc. We discussed uh, some teams uh, as to whether they're buyers or sellers, the Philadelphia Phillies for one, Kansas City Royals for another. Uh, And we end the podcast uh, by discussing in brief new Philadelphia signing, uh, the aforementioned Phillies, new Philadelphia signing Miguel Alfredo Gonzalez, of course a a Cuban right-hander who signed a six-year contract uh, with a uh, with a vesting option, I believe, uh, for an, uh, for a seventh year, eleven million dollar vesting option for a seventh year. Uh, we discuss Gonzalez in brief too, and uh, what the state of things is apropos Cuban free agents. Uh, uh, there's recent success and uh, what we might expect in the future. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. We're getting there. All right. My uh, nieces were visiting, and uh, they wanted to record their voices. So the uh, levels are not set to Dave Cameron territory at the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I do uh, have a voice that uh, is probably not too different than that of your nieces. Yeah. And uh, you articulate your words about as well as a three- or four-year-old <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> you do talk faster. They, uh, it takes yeah. them a while to get through a story. Little children in general are not – you wouldn't call them great storytellers. Uh, true. They're maybe a little too detail-oriented. Yeah, right. Yeah, they don't really have the full arc in place, though. <laughs> right. You know, you find – well, like, you know, there's a whole history of uh, of child geniuses, uh, you know, in terms of music, certainly, musical prodigies. Uh, and I feel right. like uh, certainly mathematics. Um, rarely, though, do you meet, like, a great five-year-old novelist. Yeah, that's a, this is a compelling point. I'm sure this is why people turned into the podcast. Yeah. <clears throat> well, well others, uh, let's ask this question. Uh, what is the history of baseball prodigies so far as we know? Um, well, I think there's, uh, you know, Bryce Harper is yeah. one. He, right. he, was, uh, well, he was on the radar since when? 14. He, I think he went to the Tropicana Field or whatever it was called at the time, and started doing 500-foot home runs. And uh, I think he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated at 15. That was – oh, he was that young at that age. Or at that, yeah, he at was that pretty point. young. Yeah. yeah, wow. Yeah. So so do you think that's the closest, at least in uh, sort of whether your lifetime or sort of since you've been cognizant of uh, baseball and, and maybe more just beyond the major leagues, that, is that sort of the closest thing that you've come across? Uh, Yeah, probably. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, there's been other stories, but like I mean, we're – Everyone remembers what Denny Almonte, right? Who was like 35 when he played in the Little League World Series, but mm-hmm. was pretty good compared to the nine-year-olds he was playing against. Uh, you know, I think there's been other guys, uh, certainly before our time. You know, it was 
uh, what Robin Yount made the majors at 18. I mean, there's been, you know, very good players who've gotten there very quickly. Probably not quite in like the, uh, you know, child prodigy music when they're writing, uh, you know, classical pieces at age seven. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, I was talking, who was I talking about this with? Maybe uh, we were uh, discussing tennis with someone. Um, and, uh, of course, tennis players tend to, like, 30 years old is, is like, is they're getting, done. Yeah. yeah, right. Uh, so, yeah, but so you don't, I think, I'm sorry, I'm pausing, my dog, the dog is out here getting stung. Is that bad? Your, your dog is getting stung? Yeah, wait, I gotta, I gotta Someone help the dog. Someone call PETA immediately. I'll be right back. The dog's getting stung, <laughs> one moment. Yeah, the uh, camera is there. Yeah, yeah. The dog was uh, sitting on the porch, and a, a, a wasp came up through the cracks and, and was just attached to the dog, stinging it. Wow, I yeah. felt like a bad dog owner because my dog is on a tie out and cannot go wherever he pleases, and only has like three sticks within range. I now feel like the greatest dog owner because my dog's not getting attacked by bees. Yeah, well, I just uh, I saved I saved the dog, removed the bee, and killed the killed it. So there you go. I did what I could what, do. What a hero. Okay. So we were talking about um, – uh, yeah, we were talking about baseball prodigies if such a thing exists. Right. Tennis players uh, peak differently. But I guess because you need – right, for, for a baseball player to be great, there has to be some, like, muscle mass. And that's not, it's typically just not a thing that, that younger people can hold on. Hold on, right? Right. Yeah. Tennis – I mean, not that I'm a tennis expert uh, – seems to me to be mostly about athleticism uh, and – uh, physical skills that could peak very early. I mean, we know in baseball, like, speed defense peak in the early 20s, uh, and those kind of seem to be the things that make you a good tennis player, right. where, you know, and to be a good baseball hitter, specifically hitting, uh, you need to be, you know, a couple hundred pounds and have some strength, and, you know, those are the kind of things that take time to, to put on weight and hit the gym and, right. you know, use performance-enhancing drugs, all those things. Right, but Har- now Harper was bigger, though, as a younger person. Yes, right. I mean, there are some, you know, right. teenagers who just develop sooner than others. Uh, you know, like LeBron James, I think, is a good example of this, right? Like when he was in high school, he looked like a 40-year-old man. Right. He, he, I mean, he looks roughly the same now as he did then. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. I think uh, it, it would have been, like, fascinating if LeBron James was, like, a, a baseball prospect from Cuba. <laughs> like, no one would have believed how old he was. They're like, ah, look, it's totally Contreras' kid. Right. Well, the same thing happened with, do you remember Greg Oden? He's, he's had a rough Yeah, right, right. But, Greg Oden, yeah. And Otis Nixon, he had like the oldest face of all time. He did, and yet he had young player skills throughout his career. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> quite, the, uh, quite the conundrum. Right. Um, all right, well, what are we talking about? Uh, what are we talking about? Oh, yeah. So listen, well, what is it? It's like July 29th right now, so that means the uh, trade deadline is coming up. Uh, and we've yep. seen, uh, let's see. So uh, I think that going back to, to two episodes ago, we had started to see the beginnings of it. Uh, that might have been when the Scott Feldman trade happened. That happened, is that a couple weeks ago now? Yeah, that was a couple weeks ago. Okay, and uh, we might have even spoken since Matt Garza was traded. Is that a possibility? Uh, yeah, I believe Garza was traded last week. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, sir. Well, let's pretend we've, we've, we've discussed it. Um, yeah. but this is, uh, we're getting up against it now, and, um, there, there are still some names. Uh, we've actually seen, uh, as you noted, uh, in, in the electronic pages of Fangraphs today, this has been, uh, Relief Pitcher Day. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, there's uh, been two trades, and they've both been release pitchers. So I don't know if that's enough for release pitcher day. I, I, I believe, believe that. Pitcher morning. I think I'm quoting you. It's bullpen upgrade day. That's what you say. You, those are your okay. words. Well, all right. You're way to use my own words against me. Yeah, there you are. Yeah, sorry. I, I made the mistake of reading one of your articles this time. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't do that with yours. So. I, I understand that. Uh, yeah, so, um, well, what's happened here? We, we saw at one point, um, who, who, do we, who got a good deal with, uh, well, oh, I think the Brewers maybe got a good deal. It depends, um, now this has happened in the last week. The Brewers traded Francisco Rodriguez, a player who was not on the roster to begin the season, in fact, may not have been on any roster. Yeah, he was a free agent to start the year. Right, and, uh, 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 came to the the Brewers signed him, especially when uh, for the second consecutive year their uh, bullpen uh, bullpen showed some signs of weakness. Uh, he put in some good innings for them. Certainly the the run prevention was there, um, and uh, they traded him for Nick Delmonico, who um, who has a very promising bat. Uh, maybe something more along the lines of uh, Stone type hands uh, might be a first baseman <laughs> in the future. But that's not a bad piece. For, um, that's not, that's not a bad prospect for, for a bullpen piece, especially for a team that uh, really ha- is not going to be competing. Right. I, mean, I think the best part about Nick Delmonico is he goes by Nicky, and I think, you know, baseball could use more players named Nicky. Yeah, Nicky Delmonico. He's not, yeah, right. Nicky Delmonico from the neighborhood, you know. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Jokes everywhere. Now, is uh, so what are we seeing in terms of the price of these relievers, at least? Cause, uh, so that was, we saw, uh, we saw K-Rod get traded. Um, and just yep. today we've seen Jose Veras for, I believe, Danry Vasquez from the Tigers. And a player to be named later. Okay, and a player to be named later. And then we also saw uh, Scott, Scott Downs go to Atlanta in exchange for uh, this sort of a hardish throwing right-handed reliever. Corey, Corey Rasmus, yeah. Oh, Colby's younger brother. Okay, all right, of the Rasmus family, sure. All right, so, yeah. which uh, means that the Angels have just acquired an insane father. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so now, what are we seeing there? Uh, is this uh, telling us anything about uh, the price, and maybe relative? Uh, what do we think about this price relative to years past? Did any of these teams do particularly well, et cetera? Uh, I think what we're seeing is that you know teams are probably uh, less willing to pay a premium for big name relievers. So it, it doesn't seem like Jonathan Babbelbon's going to get traded. It doesn't seem like Len Perkins is going to get traded. Uh, Bobby Parnell is probably not getting traded. Uh, I think overall what we've seen is the price for, you know, proven closers or guys who are, who are really actually quite good, uh, regardless of what their label is, is astronomically high, or teams have just decided not to make them available. So contenders have, you know, gone down to the other end of the spectrum and are saying, you know, what can we get as a seventh, eighth inning guy in order to upgrade our bullpen without really giving up anything? And I think all three guys that we've seen, you know, K-Rod, uh, you know, Barris and, uh, and Downs, they're all solid useful pieces that you don't mind pitching in, you know, decently high leverage situations, none of them are really game changers. And I think that the prices paid reflect that. Uh, and I think, you know, overall, uh, teams are probably getting a little smarter and realizing that these pitchers are really fickle and giving up, you know, Wolf and Ramos to get Matt Caps, not a very good idea. Yeah, is that sort of the most egregious one we've seen in, in recent history? Or uh, or is that maybe more, uh, at one point, was that uh, sort of uh, uh, a common? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, that used to be a little more common. Uh, I think teams are um, coming around. The idea that closers have very short shelf lives and, you know, maybe that they're kind of fungible, now, totally fungible, but, you know, besides a couple, Mariano Rivera and, you know, Trevor Hoffman and a couple others, for the most part, they have very short careers when they're elite guys, and it doesn't make sense to give up, 
you know, really good young talent in order to rent one of those guys or even get them for a couple of years. So I think overall, uh, teams are just getting smart and they're realizing, hey, you know, if I can get Jose Veras for 40 cents on the dollar and he gives me 80% of Jonathan Babylon, uh, that's a, that's a better deal than going after the guy who you know has a World Series title. Now, when you say um, that uh, maybe none of these relief pitchers are world beaters in particular, um, we also know that for teams that are pretty certain that they're going to be making the playoffs, uh, that uh, relief pitching can can have a huge effect. Yeah, um, I, I think one of the interesting things that the Rangers and Cardinals showed a couple of years ago when they just bullpen their way to the playoffs is that in October it might be more about how many good relievers you have than how good your good relievers are. I think it used to be people would say, oh, man, if you've got, you know, a setup guy and a closer, you're set. In October, that's not really true. I think you basically want to just bullpen your way through the fifth through the ninth inning and sometimes even, like, the fourth through the ninth inning. So you will kind of want, like, six or seven interesting arms down there that you can mix and match, and it doesn't really matter all that much uh, if your third-best guy or your sixth-best guy is, you know, a dominating reliever as long as you can play the matchup game and, you know, keep guys fresh and, uh, you know, only have them face hitters, you know, once or twice in the series, you can really get a big advantage uh, without having to go in for quality and, and going to quantity rather certainly much cheaper. If you if you could hold, if you could have 27 pitchers on an active roster, would, would that would be the best way to pitch a game, wouldn't it? They would just uh, they take an out each and then move on? I mean, I think that they're probably diminishing returns at some point where trying to find, if every team is, is fielding 27 pitchers or like 770 pitchers or something like that in Major League Baseball, that some of them are going to suck. So okay, I think right, that. you know, that's, that's probably not the ideal number. But, you know, it's certainly north of 12. Right, okay, right. And we've seen that before. But and this, that's become a theme uh, when we've uh, discuss, uh, talked during the playoffs last couple of years, too, is, uh, if you, you know, if you're going to try and win, how are you going to do it? And uh, uh, you, you ride starters to the playoffs. Uh, once you get there, though, you really only need a couple starters uh, it's again, it's not it's not a question of uh, one or two t- very talented pitchers. It's a question of of, of depth. And it really, it really, you know, at a certain point, a team is probably as good as its worst reliever or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I would say it exactly that way because I think you know, even in October, you still probably need a, a guy who's just kind of a sponge. Where if you're getting blown out, you don't want right. to you know burn your ace through on a day when you're you know down eleven to nothing. But for the most part, I think you know. If you go in there and say, I've got three good starters that I like, uh, the fourth guy, I'm only going to ask him to get four innings before I'm going to the bullpen, and I've got six good relievers, you know, that's a pretty good playoff staff. Now, with regard to, to depth, uh, there uh, there was a report this weekend, um, and maybe this has already been um, negated or whatever. There was a report that the, 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 the Texas Rangers might have uh, some interest, might be willing to trade Joe Nathan. Joe Nathan, of course, is their closer. Uh, the Texas Rangers are, of course uh, – um, uh, very possibly a, a playoff team, and um, as we're discussing here, it's uh, it's good for playoff teams to have uh, good relief pitchers, uh, a bunch of them. Um, th- there has been though some speculation that they might be uh, they might be willing to trade Joe Nathan because they have, for example, Neftali Feliz returning, um, they have Matt Harrison returning, which would send which could send Alexi Ogando uh, to the bullpen. Um, they have uh, they have Colby Lewis returning. Um, and he, you know, essentially they have a b- bunch of guys coming back. And and Joe Kim Sorry is already there. And Joe Kim Sorry is already there, right? And he's uh, he's been very effective in the past. And uh, um, I don't know how many innings he's uh, he's logged as of now, but um, one assumes that if he's but, returned to health. Yeah, I mean he's, he's showing that he might be not terribly far removed from what he was a few years ago. Maybe not the same guy, but you know, capable of pitching the ninth inning. 
Right. Uh, I'm curious, though, is the, the sort of precedent uh, of a team. Now, I know we spoke, I think it was last week, we, we, we discussed uh, um, the case of the Marlins and their willingness to trade Giancarlo Stanton. Uh, we discussed how it was not going to be. Uh, th- now, there might be some teams that say, well, you know, it's not, it doesn't make sense for us. But generally speaking, with regard to Stan, there were going to be teams who, who weren't necessarily in the playoff hunt who would be eager to acquire him just because of um, the amount of value he's going to have over, um, you know, more than the next couple of years uh, you're going to provide. I mean, you know, he, and he's a great player already. Uh, and here's another sort of uh, interesting trade, trade deadline situation where a team that um, very much has a shot of making the playoffs – um, could could actually be trading away uh, part of its bullpen. Um, is is there a sort of is there a precedent for that? I guess so far as you remember. Yeah, I think uh, Billy Bean did this with Billy Taylor back in like I don't know 1996 or something, where uh, NBA's were not the best team in the league, but they were in the playoff race if, if I remember correctly. And uh, Bean basically did like a buy and sell where he traded away Billy Taylor, got some prospects. I think he traded for Jason Isringhausen, maybe. Uh, and maybe Isringhausen, his closer. I could have been this was 15 years ago, so my memory is a little vague. But I think it was something along those lines where he traded an older, proven closer who he just stuck in that role a few months prior, uh, turned him into a proven closer, flipped that for prospects, and acquired a new guy who could become a proven closer and kind of started the wheel all over again. Uh, it's pretty rare, though. I mean, I think for the most part, teams still kind of put themselves in buyer or seller boxes, and they, there's not too many of them who are willing to say, you know, I'm trying to upgrade my team, and I'm willing to take a, a player off my roster in order to do it. Uh, if you see that kind of player get traded, it's usually a young guy who's a reserve and might not have a spot in the starting lineup or, you know, a back-end starter, uh, and they, they think they can call up someone to replace him who wasn't super critical. Um, I think, in general, you don't see teams trading 37-year-old all-stars while they're making a run. Uh, but in this case, I think the Rangers are probably doing the right thing. I mean, as we talked about, there aren't a lot of, you know, closers on the market. Uh, or the teams that have them aren't willing to trade them. And I think Texas is uh, understanding that, you know, Nathan's not that hard to replace given what they have. They wouldn't get a huge drop-off from, from losing him. And if they could actually turn uh, the shortage of, of proven closers on the market into letting them trade Nathan for value and or maybe uh, trade Nathan for something that they needed more, it might even make their team better. I don't think it's going to happen, but it's interesting that they're at least considering it. So the, and that would be a, a rare instance, I would assume, of a contender trading with another contender. Yeah, right. I mean, I think you know, you're certainly not going to say rebuilding. You trade for joining them. So uh, I think you'd basically be looking for the Rangers to find a team that had extra bats and thought they needed bullpen help, uh, which until this afternoon, maybe you could have said Tigers were in that mix. Uh, but now the Tigers have Jose Veras, and uh, they probably aren't going to be interested in paying a high price for Joe Nathan. Right. And, and the Rangers are looking for offense. Is that the idea? Yeah, I think with Lance Berkman being hurt and not very good this year, uh, Nelson Cruz potentially getting suspended, Elvis Andrus has forgotten how to hit, uh, David Murphy has forgotten how to hit. Uh, they, their offense has been underwhelming, and I think they're looking for some bats besides Adrian Beltre to actually do some stuff. Right, okay. And uh, so now the, with, with a couple days left here, though, uh, what are, some, what are the names, uh, sort of most impressive names, um, who we can't expect to uh, to be moving on to another team. I know, I, I believe I heard a report that Jake Peavy has literally already packed his suitcases. Yeah, I think Peavy probably knows he's getting traded. Uh, I don't think there's anything imminent, but he's also not going to make a start in Chicago. They're going on the road. Uh, and so there's no real reason for him to maintain a locker if he knows that he's getting traded by Wednesday. Uh, so I don't think that necessarily means he's already been traded, but he was probably told that there's, you know, 
a basically 100% chance that Rick Hahn's going to take one of the offers he has on the table, uh, and, and so PV won't start against the White Sox. He's probably the, the most likely good player to get traded. Uh, now that the Phillies have lost 35 in a row or whatever it is, uh, the, the ever-present Cliff Lee rumors are back. Uh, but apparently uh, the Phillies are asking for uh, four top prospects and another team to swallow the 70-something million dollars we still have left on his deal. Uh, good luck with that. Now, let's let's go, well let's do the Phillies in a second. But with, you mentioned with regard to Han that um, there are probably some offers there. And so is this a situation where the GM is most likely just to just to wait until the best possible offer comes in, and then you know, so you have offer ranked one, offer two, offer three, and then you tell like the second or third team there's an offer better than than uh, what you have, or then what there's an offer better than what you've given me. Do you wish to upgrade it? If not, then you're not getting JPP. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if that's exactly how it works. But my guess is that, uh, you know, Han has basically told the teams who are bidding that there are other teams bidding. They, have, they certainly know that they're bidding against other teams based on the reports that are out there. And I wouldn't be surprised if the White Sox basically said, you know, here's our asking price. We're not trading TV until someone meets it. Uh, you know, first team to meet it, meet our asking price uh, gets TV, and, and now it's kind of just a, a staring contest. So, you know, all the teams are barking at the price. Uh, but, they, you know, they're probably not too terribly far away for Han to be confident enough that he's going to take some form of a deal in order to tell PV to go ahead and clean out his locker. Now, the Phillies are a team, uh, of course, that uh, they have quite a bit of money invested in their roster, and uh, they do not appear to be uh, any sort of great threat um, to, to make the playoffs this year. I believe uh, you posted today, Cots, uh, uh, no, not per Cots, uh, uh, Cool standings, uh, data um, regarding the playoff possibility of making the playoffs. Philadelphia is currently at 0.9% uh, as of today. Um, it seems as though uh, perhaps this has been altered. Uh, this, this has altered uh, Ruben Amaro's thoughts on the matter, but uh, the, the Phillies in Amaro have been reluctant uh, to call themselves sellers. Right. I, yeah, I mean, I think in general uh, – Amaro has built a an aging team that is probably difficult to rebuild. He gave an interview about a month ago where he said, you know, they weren't going to blow the thing up. Uh, in part, they can't blow the thing up. I mean, you know, this isn't a, a Red Sox situation where, you know, they have Adrian Gonzalez who might be, you know, a, a little bit overpaid or fairly paid, uh, but there's a team out there that really wanted Adrian Gonzalez and so they could capitalize on it and move a bunch of contracts. No one's taking Ryan Howard. Uh, they're probably not getting value for Jonathan Babylon. I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, he cleared waivers in August. Uh, he's not pitching that well this year. Uh, velocity's down and that contract's fairly sizable. So you've got two of their, you know, highest paid players who are probably untradeable for anything in return. Uh, you know, they can ask for a lot for Cliff Lee, but they're not going to get a, a mountain for a guy making $25 million a year at his age. Uh, there's just not a lot of pieces. <laughs> What's going on here? Well, my dog didn't uh, didn't appreciate the fact that I'm doing a podcast. She would really like me to rub her stomach instead. Oh, okay. Well, can you um, is it possible to do both, or uh, it is possible to do both. So the problem is that my dog has uh, decided she loves the sun, and oh. you know, North Carolina in the summers were a little sticky. Uh, yeah. Humidity is kind of kind of a thing out here. Yeah. And uh, we've had we got about six inches of rain on Saturday. Uh, we just had a thunderstorm from like 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. and it flooded everything. Uh, and so we have uh, the world's largest swarm of mosquitoes. Oh. And uh, my dog, my, they don't bother my dog at all. She's just sitting there basking in their in their bedding. Uh, I don't I don't love getting bit by mosquitoes. No, okay, I see what's uh, going on. So, yeah. so I'm trying to like you know keep my distance, but then you know she likes to be 
It'd be pat, pat it on the bottom, yeah. Um, well, it, always, it takes one. Uh, so that's the first. There's another team, too, that has uh, uh, been quoted of latest, um, despite what what seem um, the contrary of logic has uh, suggested they are not sellers, and that it was uh, uh, the Royals and uh, general manager Dayton Moore. Um, they have something closer to a chance of making the playoffs at this point. Uh, about nine. Uh, not, I mean, closer, yes, but still not real. Still not real. So, well, 9%. It's not far from the Yankees, but the Yankees right. also uh, probably won't make the playoffs. Yeah, I think there's a, a little bit of a difference there in that the Royals' chances of making playoffs are almost entirely based on Detroit collapsing, uh, whereas the Yankees actually have some viable way of playing their way into a wild card spot. The Royals don't really. The Royals are basically just hoping that a good team plays terribly for two months. Okay. So, uh, right. The Royals have announced, or Dane Moore announced somewhat recently that he's, uh, not, he, that he considers, I think he considers himself a buyer or going to the trade deadline. Uh, perhaps well, they've, they've, they've flipped their mind several times. Last week they made Irvin Santana available when they lost like seven in a row and then they won five in a row and now he's not available anymore. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Uh, um, what, what's the status today? Uh, I think as of today they're doing nothing. I don't think they're going to buy. Uh, that hopefully they realize that they're not good enough to actually give up future prospects to try and make a playoff run. But I think that their most recent winning streak has at least deluded them into uh, not selling in order to try and finish at 500. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they'll try and get a draft pick for Urban Santana at the end of the year. But now listen, with, it, with a team like the Rose, uh, is, there, is there another example of a club that is uh, – Held on to its GM um, for so long, uh, despite a, a pretty clear lack of success. I, I mean, I know. No. That, I mean, at some level, I was going to say that, that maybe the Pirates are analogous to some degree. Neil Huntington was around for a while, but that team was also. Yeah. Uh, I think the the Pirates have uh, had a uh, a little more success under Neil Huntington. It hasn't been as sustained of a losing. I think Dayton Moore has been the Royal GM for something like eight years, and they've lost 90 games every year of that, I believe. Uh, so, you know, yeah. I think there's some motivation here to not lose uh, a lot of games again just because of the fact that they've lost a lot when Dayton Moore's in charge. Uh, and, you know, whether, I mean, you know, I don't want to accuse Dayton Moore of saying he's doing this to try and keep his own job. I think generally props employees are uh, decent at putting the organization ahead of their own interests. I think it's difficult in this situation to separate out your emotion and saying, I'm tired of losing. Everyone in our front office is tired of losing. We have a chance to not lose uh, and to make a run for it, even though you, you don't really have a chance to win. I think there's a difference in winning and not losing. The Royals are essentially trying to not lose. Which usually is not good. Uh, that seems yeah. to have a poor – and it's also uh, could be something that if they were to make a move, hypothetically, it would also affect their future. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at this point, Urban Santana's trade value is at its absolute peak. Uh, even if they are able to resign him this winter, uh, you know, we've seen Urban Santana in his career be quite terrible as recently as last year. It's not clear that giving Urban Santana a multi-year contract is a good idea. Uh, James Shields' trade value is only going to go down. It's not clear that they're going to be able to or should resign him when he becomes a free agent after next season. Uh, the Royals have two of the more coveted starting pitchers on the market. They could get a uh, huge haul for both of those pitchers. It appears that they're going to trade neither, and, you know, in, in a year and a half, they won't have Irvin Santana or James Shields, or if they do, they'll be at 
contracts that aren't that friendly, uh, and they won't have a right fielder, and they still won't have a good enough offense, and they'll, they'll still not be a winning team. Hmm. So what you're saying is not not a great setup. Is there any is there any indication that uh, that's going to change in the near future, or does he still uh, does Moore still continue to get votes of confidence from the uh, from management? I think the general consensus from the Kansas City beat writers was that Dayton Moore isn't in any trouble. It's hard to believe that the the ownership just can't see what's going on, though. I mean, pretty much every front office change in the last five years has been to bring in a young, analytic, uh, you know, kind of more uh, number-centric front office. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of teams that have done so have had some success, and, uh, you know, it's been more positive than negative. Uh, I think, you know, Dayton Moore is kind of the last of a dying breed, and I think eventually the Royals are going to have to get around to, to joining the 21st century and, and hiring, putting someone in the big chair who's, you know, values things a little differently than he does. Right, and it's not just, uh, I mean, it should be stated, right, it's not just the concept of using numbers or not using numbers, right? But it's, I guess it's a question right. of using all of the information that's available to you. Yeah, and, you know, I think, like, the Royals certainly have, like, a stat department. They have guys uh, on staff who are very smart. Uh, one of the guys who presented at Faber Seminar last year is actually back to present a Faber Seminar this year. Last year he was a, a Vanderbilt uh, grad student. This year he's a member of the Royals front office. Like, the Royals have guys who understand these concepts. The problem is those guys aren't making decisions. Right, and those concepts at some level have, they they predate, uh, let's see, how do we say, Th- there have been, General managers who have been smart and have been shrewd in their uh, moves um, in the way they run a franchise without necessarily uh, um, using the same terminology that uh, maybe more sabermetric crowd might use. Yeah, I mean, I think Fran, who was just, you know, the, runs the Braves, which is where Dane Moore was, you know, it's a pretty good example. And John Schultz, you know, they kind of set up an organization that, you know, they're not super statistical they don't have an army of interns running calculations all day uh you know they're they're more of an old school front office but the good is evaluating right so like they they might not uh talk about woba or war or fit but they understand like pitchers that don't walk anyone and get a lot of strikeouts and don't give a home runs are good and hitters who get on base and drive in runs are good and like you know the the tenets of their their values are mostly in line with what sabermetrics agree with even if they don't speak the language right okay uh, let's see. We, we, didn't, uh, we didn't talk about PV specifically. You said that there might be some deals on the table. Do you have a um, um, in your? Uh, can you utilize your faculty of intuition uh, to give us a sense of the team with which PV ends up? Uh, my guess is it's going to be the Oakland A's. I, I think the uh, this is a kind of a classic Billy Bean uh, kind of market opportunity where he looks at PV as a guy who's under contract for next year. Uh, Things, my guess is that the A's are going to kind of borrow Jake Peavy. So uh, instead of seeing him as a guy that can control for a year and a half, they're going to look at him as a rental that they then get to trade for prospects this winter. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if the A's uh, gave up something to get Peavy, improved their rotation because there's not really the uh, second baseman out there that would you know make a big impact on their team for the stretch run. They want to get better. They're probably going to make the playoffs. PV improves their team, and then you know over the winter they'll have PV on a one-year, fourteen million dollar deal to recoup some of the prospects that they gave up to get them in the first place. Um, now let's see. Uh, we, we said that the the Rangers might be willing to trade uh, Nathan and maybe someone else for uh, for a decent hitter. Who who are the hitters that are still available? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I think <laughs> Brian Cashman said this is a offensive offensive market. Yeah. Uh, you know they ended up with Alfonso Soriano, and you know there's an argument to be made that he was. One of the best hitters available. Um, 
think you're probably looking at, you know, Nate Sherholtz is one of the, the better offensive players that you could get, and this is a guy who's non-tendered by the Phillies last year. Uh, Aramis Ramirez is theoretically available, but he's due $20 million, and he's got a bad knee, and he's on the disabled list. Uh, you know, there's just not a lot of bats out there. Uh, it's mostly an arms race right now, and I think the teams that are looking for offense are uh, unhappy with the selection. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's let's get beyond that. Uh, one thing, uh, and you, you like I say, you almost fulfilled your obligation here. Let's uh, uh, over the weekend, the Phillies, uh, the team about whom we've been speaking uh, of late, uh, the Phillies signed a, a Cuban pitcher. Um, yeah, Miguel Gonzalez. Miguel Gonzalez, not but not that Miguel Gonzalez. Apparently, Miguel Gonzalez who throws in the mid nineties uh, and has a relatively deep repertoire. At uh, I believe he's uh, is he not twenty six years old? Um, so we we say well that's that's the age of a major league pitcher. Uh, this is a this is someone we could see. Uh, one assumes this year by the end of this year. Uh, he signed for uh, quite a bit of money. It could be a, a six years, forty eight. Could be as much as a. Uh, 59 with a with a vesting option. Uh, it, it seems as though we, we've seen, uh, what, over the last three to five years, a number of Cubans signing contracts, and these contracts have been progressively bigger. At one point, it was uh, Araldis Chapman, who I think signed for not more than $25 million, right? I think he got 30, yeah. You got, th- you got 30 at, at the time. Uh, and then there was uh, Cespedes, uh, but these uh, who, who I think uh, signed for uh, – 36 over 4. 36 over 4, and then Puig signed for $42 million, uh, and now we have Gonzalez signing for for 48. These contracts are going up, but the, the three that we've mentioned uh, preceding that have all worked out pretty well. Yeah, I think you could probably throw Hinge and Ryu into that mix. I mean, obviously he's not Cuban, but, you know, kind of the same rules of basically the new... Uh, I don't know, the current CBA, I, I want to stop calling it the new CBA now. The present, the present, yeah. The, yeah, the, okay. the, pre- the present CBA has demarcated 23-year-olds as the line at which you can uh, spend a lot of money to still buy prospects or buy players. Under that age, they're subject to all the financial regulations and the, the restrictions that come with uh, players, you know, on the international market. Uh, so now I think what we're seeing is these over-23 uh International free agents are getting a lot more money because this is the only avenue left, really, to just throw cash at the player and get a prospect. And but it's been working, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, recently the returns have been pretty good. I mean, Puig and Ryu and Cespedes, uh, you know, not a bad tracker. It is only three guys, uh, and it's you know well, Chapman, a little bit Chapman, faulty. Chapman, Chapman. Yeah, Chapman has worked out. I mean, I think you know you could argue whether paying thirty million dollars over six years for a reliever, even though he's the best reliever in baseball, is like a huge value. I mean, it's certainly a value. It's been a good signing for the Reds, uh, but he is a reliever. So. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, but I think you know overall, it's it's a little tough to look at just you know a handful of guys and be like, well, teams should just keep giving increasing amounts of money to every player who comes from that country just because his countrymen did good. Like that's not really what you want to do in analysis. And uh, you know, with Gonzalez, it's like. I think he's just kind of a lottery ticket. Like, the Phillies probably know better than we do. They think he's worth $48 million. I don't think we know enough to say that he's not, uh, except for 20 other nine other teams didn't think so. Okay. All right, let's, uh, well, that's good. I, uh, I don't know. If I, uh, have we missed anything here? Uh, Mariners designate Jason Bay for assignment. Is that, uh, is that worth <laughs> 10 minutes? Uh, uh, I don't think it's worth 10 seconds. Okay. All right. Well, we've already dedicated that much to it. Uh, yeah, well, it seems like uh, you're free to, uh, I guess, entertain your dog then. Yeah, she's chasing me around in this. Uh, only made me bleed twice during this podcast. That's yeah. good. Well, there you go. Yeah, um, something to look look forward to. Uh, all right. Well, uh, well, I'll thank you then. Uh, we'll say uh, thank you to uh, Dave Cameron, the uh, managing editor of Fangraphs. Thank me. 
Yep, we're thanking you. We just thanked you. Uh, yeah. That is yeah. that, usually say thank you, Carson. Oh, right. Or, yeah, or, thank you, Carson. It's thank you for, for making this podcast you know, tolerable. It's been a pleasure. Uh, right. That is uh, Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. What do we got here? I should stop.